print friends, and welcome to the sixth episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release an episode every two weeks, and on the off weeks, I publish an article on the Pine Copper Lime website that features images and maybe a little more information about the artist I'm going to chat with. In this episode, I talk to Ben Barris. He's a printmaker who lives and works in Seattle, Washington, as well as an instructor at Cornish College of the Arts, his alma mater, and the third of an art trio called Sutton Barris Color, whose practice ranges from gallery works to installation, performance, and public projects. Ben and I chat about his early influences, such as how growing up in the church, the son of a preacher man, unexpectedly groomed him to be extremely well-suited to the community building inherent in the art world. We also talk about the complexities of being an art instructor in this day and age, art making in the time of Trump, and how we will all need to evolve as the face of the art world, such as who has money, who collects, and who cares, radically changes in coming years. I've known and loved Ben for many years, working with him at Davidson Galleries in Seattle. So I think this might be one of the most fun episodes I've recorded thus far. You'll find that Ben has a great mind and an even better sense of humor, and I think our ready-made rapport really comes through quite nicely. Anything he mentions can be found in the show notes. If you'd like to drop me a line, Pine Copper Lime can be found at pinecopperlime.com and at pinecopperlime on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And as of the week this podcast is published, I'm celebrating 5,000 followers on Instagram with a really nice etching to give away. So if Instagram and free good art is your thing, pop on over and say hi. That can be found at pine.copper.lime. Without further ado, here's Ben. Hey, Miranda. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are things in Seattle? They're good. They're unseasonably warm and sunny, and everyone's got a fall smile on their face, so it's nice. Yeah, well, enjoy it while you can. Well, I'm stuck inside talking to you. (laughs) (laughs) I'll make it worth your while. I'll make it worth your while. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm happy we could could sit down and chat. So... Um, so I know you from my time at Davidson and had the, the pleasure and the honor of representing your work for, for many years there. But would you mind telling our audience a little bit about yourself? Um, I was born in Akron, Ohio in 1976. <clears throat> my parents moved to Portland pretty much immediately. And uh, my father's a pastor, and I grew up... Um, in the church and thinking I was going to become a pastor of some sorts, but also really wanted to just was struck with the art bug early on and um, was always drawing, was always creating, was always uh, making things with my hands and got a lot of attention for that and came up to Seattle to go to art school in 96 and went to Cornish College of the Arts. I was going to be a painter and a sculptor and I kind of came out as a printmaker and a performance artist so Mm -hmm. however that happens but sculpture was kind of boring and dead to me and it needed some life and then I found printmaking through uh, John Overton and Kathleen Rabel who were both at Cornish for almost 40 years and just were amazing mentors and teachers and Kathleen also showed at Davidson and helped me get that introduction to Sam 
And so I had worked with Kara for a long time and then you, you became the new Kara and it was awesome. <laughs> I think, I think I will forever be the new Kara. The most lovely person. Yeah. Probably. Cause she's, and, and you know, she was there for 11 years, you know, I mean, I really had this incredible opportunity to, to step into this incredible group of artists that she had put her heart and soul into for, for over a decade. So I'm always okay with the title of being the new Kara. <laughs> I wear it proudly. I wear it proudly. So you talked a little bit about your background there and, you know, how you grew up in the church and how did that kind of, and you said, you know, you got a lot of attention for sort of making things with your hands and doing art, but how did that interact with the church environment? Did people, were they supportive of the, of the arts or was it sort of suspicious because, you know, you know how artists are? <laughs> Um, I do know how <laughs> it was fine. I mean, my dad was a youth pastor for most of my growing up. And then when I left for college, he became a pastor of his own church. He was kind of wild and wacky for being a pastor. So it was, there was a lot of leeway, I think, and mm. really open and accepting. Um, but like, I would, I remember one of my first lino cuts was a, like, hill with a skull and like three crosses and like i sold that magician out like crazy to like all the church members uh, this is like your audience right. <laughs> they've always been really accepting and uh but yeah there was definitely like it was a choice of becoming a pastor or becoming an artist and i i feel like what i do is very much aligned with what i grew up with as far as you know gathering around a central idea which is art versus god um always asking for money, <laughs> um, big sense of community, you know, having events, having community around and like all for this kind of greater good thing. Um, it's just much freer and less judgmental to be an artist. Yeah. That's something I've always found was really interesting about your, your story and particularly knowing you and having seen you at your openings and the way you are very comfortable in that role of talking to people and making them feel comfortable and feel like you're sort of bringing them in to the fold, so to speak. And yeah. I'm sure that comes I mean, I, from... I hated it growing up. Like, my mom would be like, so-and-so sitting alone. Or like, you should go talk to this person. Or like, go. Or like, you have to go to this. And like, it was... I, I was fully formed into this. And I absolutely despised it. And I, I was really shy growing up. And like, as I kind of grew up and got older and more confident, like, I'm like, oh my... God, I've been like perfectly groomed to just like be like a, a people person, to be an artist, like almost this like hybrid, like politician, artist, uh, pastor type thing. And it's, I love it. It's great. I, when people talk about social anxiety and being uncomfortable in large groups, I just, it's completely confusing to me. I have the same experience where I, I understand it, but I'm always, you know, I'm always the kind of person that I'm like, ooh, an opening. I never have that like, oh, I hate them. I never know what to say feeling. And But, you know, there's just everyone's a little bit different. Yeah, totally. Okay. And like my partner, Amanda Monotalk, she grew up in the churches of all. So like we can go out and just have a blast at these openings. And like there's no like qualms with like spending too much time at that or like, you know, being annoyed by people. I mean, that happens too, but. It's just we're we're so used to it, and it's it's nice. It's a total added like bonus. And then, so you touched on a little bit how you came to printmaking, but can you talk about how you realized that this was something that you wanted to dedicate a lot of your life and a lot of your practice to? The other thing I should say is that this is like my my art practice is 
multifaceted in the way that I've been working with two other guys for this September is the beginning of year 19. Um, So it's John Sutton and Zach Color, and we go by Sutton Bear's Color, and we do public art, sculpture, drawings, um, any whatever needs to be done (laughs) in getting idea out. Um, But yeah, almost 20 years together, and so I kind of joke that printmaking and etching is my like hobby, is my solo practice. It's the one thing I do that like no one else can like fuck with. They can't. Mm-hmm. They don't get to tell me what color or like we don't have to argue about the size or where it's going. It's like this is mine and that's really like precious to me. So I have a lot of like love for the like time that I have with the plate because it's mine. And mm-hmm. like I love my collaborative. I love working on large scale things. I love doing performances, but like there's always so many voices that this is what I get to do completely on my own. So I think when I started at, at Cornish, I remember not liking liking it. I was having a hard time with the image, with like the rigidity of like a rectangle or a square. And I started doing these large scale drawings that were just writing. And it was for a class uh, that I had with Chris Brew, who's an awesome sculptor based in Seattle. And my roommate at the time, Zach, my partner was like, you should try that on a copper plate. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I did it. I did it. It was called the piece called First Words. And I think in there I was like, oh, I wonder if I can go smaller. And so I just I jumped in and like was just I gave myself a task with filling a plate. And we're talking about copper etching through a hard ground. And I loved it. And I just like it stuck. And I started like selling a little bit. And realizing um, I'm now teaching at Cornish. And so my one of my spiels with the students were like, I don't know if I want to do painting or print. I'm like, do the math with like selling a thousand dollar painting. And you get five hundred dollars and you spend a hundred dollars, so you get four hundred dollars and there's nothing. Or you sell thirty of these at three hundred dollars, like blah 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 blah. And also you're in these different collections in people's houses and uh, you get to be in shows here and there. And it seemed like a no-brainer to me, like on a pragmatic level, but also just like being a sculptor, dealing with mold making and casting, like I find printmaking very much a sculptural. I mean, we're dealing with incredibly small tolerances, but you're still like dealing with like how an acid bites into the metal or like how deep you carve into wood or, you know, making marks that then are holding ink or repelling ink. And it's, it's just, it's really satisfying. And like, I don't know, when you meet other printmakers, you know, your, your tribe geek out on the inks or the paper or the copper, the wood, like it just, it goes on and on and on. Yeah. There's definitely a crossover between sculpture artists and printmaking artists. Um, and I think you've, you've really touched on it with the, the it's about manipulating a, a three dimensional surface and in a very shallow <laughs> way, but it's still that same kind of mark making, which is great. Uh, Kathleen would always talk about microns of levels of like the ink that you're like laying down or taking off and then like, you know, 30 seconds of an inch of like this etching in or like, I just remember like shrinking down to these sizes and scales, but also knowing that like, oh, this is sculptural, this is dimension. So you mentioned a bit there that you were teaching at Cornish, which is a, a great art school in Seattle that you also graduated from. But I'd love to hear you talk about what do you find the state of printmaking is these days? Like, how are the kids these days? Do they like printmaking? Do they come to your classroom knowing about it? Do you think that you're getting more people for our tribe? Um, what's your impression there? 
you know, it's funny. I I feel like I've kept out of the like larger printmaking world, like following more people on Instagram, learning more about different uh, presses and whatnot, and then just recently going to the SGCI uh, conferences and planning on going again this year. It's been really eye-opening and helpful. Hi, print friends. It's me again. And no, don't worry. I'm not interrupting to bring you a well-placed, amusing advertisement direct to a target audience from an ink manufacturer, paper company, or postgraduate program. Although if anyone works in advertising for anything like that, you know where to find me. But instead I'm doing it because Ben and I have mentioned this conference a couple of times. And for those who are uninitiated, it's the Southern Graphics Council International Conference. Long name, kinda awkward, but it's a huge and super fun printmaking conference held in America once a year. It's an amazing place to see demonstrations, hear talks from top scholars in the field from around the world, but most importantly, to connect with people who are incredible printmakers and incredible humans. The next one is going to be in Dallas, Texas, and Pine Copper Lime, and me, will be there as a vendor. So make sure to get your tickets and come say hi. And as always, there'll be a link in the show notes. Okay, sorry, back to Ben. Yes, kids are totally into it. They love it. I just think it's the it's that constant conflict of space and material and presses and just the availability of the equipment mm-hmm. um, that is difficult once they graduate. But like we, for the last three years, I've been in and out of teaching there, but the last three years we've had a handful of them that just get immediately hooked and they love it. And then their BFA shows are strictly printmaking and it's awesome. And I'm bringing one or two of my students to Texas this year for that conference. Um, I don't know. I, th- I think it's good. I think it's helpful that we have that anchor of Davidson in town. I wish there were more printmaking mm. like studios and galleries, but like it's, it's pretty robust here. It seems pretty healthy. Yeah, I think I think they're all interested. I think a lot of them, when they get it, they realize that like, oh, this is so different than a lot of them approach it as painting or drawing, and it's not. It's neither. Um, it can be better than both, or it's this new hybrid that is just it's so above and beyond that. And then again, the multiple is just amazing. Um, so right now we've done we started with some aqua tinting like right off the bat which was really fun. We, there was an Alex Cat show at the Bellevue Art Museum mm-hmm. that was all these poets from the 70s that was only was like four or five layer uh, aquatints, no line etching. So we started with that and then went into etching. And now we're on the callographs, moving into monoprints. And then I think we're going we're gonna to dip into vitriography at some point soon as well, which I've been teaching at Pilchuck, which is fun. What do you think about the fact that printmaking is kind of separate or can be separate from a quote-unquote large arts community. So a place like Davidson Galleries really, for the most part, does not show painting, does not show sculpture. And it seems like really robust printmaking galleries tend to be that way. And non-medium-specific galleries that happen to show print, it may not get the same attention in that environment as it does in a printmaking specific gallery, obviously. So 
this is a question that I actually wonder a lot too. Are we doing ourselves a favor by having just a printmaking gallery or is that sort of separation overall maybe damaging if our end goal is to get printmaking more into the public eye or more education and understanding about it? God, I don't know. I mean, because <clears throat> like Kusera, the other gallery that I show with Sutton Bear's Color, he will definitely show prints and that'll be like certain editions or some silk screens or, or whatever. We did a bunch of vitriography through him and that's all fine. And it seems like other galleries do include it. Um, I'm also like in that glass world a little bit where they're just like, oh, no one takes us seriously. Like, <laughs> and that's like, and to me, that shows that print is like way better off. Yeah. Uh, and they're kind of stuck in this, like, we're a craft. This is all we do. But, like, it also, there has to be crossover. And maybe Seattle's gotten a lot better at that because we're so heavy with glass and there's a lot of printmaking opportunities. I imagine other cities, like, the, like never the two shall meet. But I don't know. Like, I also think, like, if you're just a printmaker, like, to me, that's pretty weird, too. Like, um, I mean there are ideas that have to be done in three dimensions or sculpture or bronze. And, um, and maybe that's just the way that I've been working for 25 years now that, um, you know, public art isn't going to be a print uh, or like a glass vase, but right. yeah, yeah, I feel like I'm dancing around your question, but I don't really know the answer. Yeah. I don't know either. Yeah, because in, in a way, I think part of the way that we are separated is what gives us that sense of community that's so strong and wonderful. And I would never want to see that go away. But then I also talk to people who really seem to think that if artists who are printmaking specific ever want to have a chance of really making a living just doing their art, it needs to break out of the bubble. We need to have people understanding that these aren't photocopies, these aren't afterworks, that these are original works that are multiples. Oh, so uh, you work with the uh, PDFs? Uh, that's uh... <laughs> right. God damn it! No, what? Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, one of one of my like dreams, and I think I might just be in the wrong place for institution, or there's just not enough capital, but like. Cornish is such a badass uh, printmaking studio. And I'm like, all right, let's bring in Amanda. Let's bring in Zach. Let's bring in Jeffrey Mitchell. Let's bring in former students. Let's bring in people who just work in painting, like Marjorie Livingston, or I'm just naming off a bunch of Seattle artists. Like, let's get their work, at least for their next show, at like James Harris or Cusera or Soil or For Culture. Like, let's have an etching involved. Let's have a litho. Yes. Let's do. And then that could just start being these like kind of calling cards, A, for Cornish or whatever press wants to do it. And B, for like, I mean, I do feel like an evangelist for this medium. Like, you know, yeah. look at the etching, look at the copper, look at look at what we've done. And I'm also, I think, doing it a little bit differently than is seen by like what I normally see as traditional etching. Um, yeah, it doesn't have to be stuck in this like. I'm not making landscapes. I'm not uh -huh. like so much of the problem with printmaking to me, it's, it's very much like contemporary dance. It's like just for the printmakers or just for the dancers. Like, yeah. um, it's gotta be sure. Technically sound. And like, I want to like look at an amazing Aquatant or like 
badass spit bite but like you not knowing those techniques should also be able to look at an image and be like inspired or like find it interesting um that's always that conundrum for me yeah i think this is a great way to segue into talking more specifically about your printmaking practice really in your last exhibition that you had at davidson i think is when we really saw a big transition the earlier work sort of to talk about that because i think that that transition is significant but we obviously have to know where you're coming from to understand that when i first came to davidson the work that you were doing or at least the work that we had you know it was pretty i'd say pretty simple line etching so you know just in technique it was either relief rolled or just um a line etching for the most part and you would have kind of two bodies of of two sides of that you know one where you were you know doing this like extremely tight writing, maybe filling the whole plane with very small, very precise writing, which of course you did backwards. You know, then you would have maybe it filled with images as well, filling that whole plane. And those could be images from pop culture or just kind of um, the general. And this is, I think I've mentioned to you before that like one of the only times I want to use the word zeitgeist is talking about your work, but I always hate, (laughs) I hate myself for actually using it, talking about art, but, um, you know, so pulling something from our zeitgeist and, and it was, it was very much, I think, uh, it, it felt like a lot of it was sort of stream of consciousness um, you know, either in words or in images, or it, the then the, the other side of it, which I think is what eventually evolved into what I'm seeing from you now, was a little bit larger words where you maybe were actually supposed to read them, and then the visual composition of how you've placed the words in the plane is, is adding to the actual content that the words make. And so it's a it's a left brain and right brain experience where you are deciphering what the words are mean. And then that in itself is sort of the experience that you're having while engaging with it. I think you missed the mark completely. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. That's that's great. This interview (laughs) is over. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, that's awesome. I, I do think that like, it's really good to like hear that and then think about where I'm at. And a lot of this does have to do with being a Cornish and um, my lab tech there, his name is Bradley Taylor. He is awesome. And he's like one of the most eager, like hungry, like he just wants to know and he wants to conquer every little bit of printmaking. And it's so much fun to have him at my side and to be like, do you know this technique? What about this? What about this? And so in the past I had, because I didn't have as much access to um, presses, I would like load up a bunch of plates, bevel them, hard ground them, and they would sit. So I could work really, really long, knowing that when I had access to a press, I would plop them in the acid and then like fire out for like two straight weeks, a bunch of small additions or bigger if I could. So now that I'm in the lab three days a week, four days a week, I get to like work really slow on learning this Aquatint or something I'm calling messy tint and like throwing the rosin down and trying to mess with sugar lift. But I just have more time in the lab and that has made it so I can like slow down and pull back. Also, I think like 
I was 20, 25, 28 when I was like blasting all those letters down. Now, like, I feel like I'm at least old enough that I can like figure out something mildly interesting to say that <laughs> isn't so like obscured with like, I don't know, I'm just going to get it all out there. Now I can like, uh, I feel like I've paid enough dues to have like a slight opinion, <laughs> if yeah. that makes any sense. Well, that's, yeah, um, that's the, that's the thing is where I see, you know, now where your work's evolved into is this, you know, it, 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 it is so much more playful in the printmaking, which obviously comes from your uh, access at Cornish, you know, and, and, and again, you know, a temperament changes between, you know, as 20 years go by, but, but also the content has become, I guess for lack of a better word, just more political. What's I'm trying to think of what a word would be for like the news lately. Um, so there's you know. a level of there is a level of feeling a little bit helpless and like all I can do, all I know how to do, and what I am the best at is making art. And so like how can I do that in a way that actually means something that doesn't feel like I mean, it's still shouting into the void, but like maybe it's like a little bit more interesting sounding going into the void. Do you think that <clears> it's <throat> possible to be an artist in America now and not make political work? In, you know, in the sense that it's all the insanity is so present and so crushing and, you know, as you say, making you feel powerless. Yeah. It almost feels like being an artist or making art is a political act in itself. Right. Um, that may be a cop out, but like, I don't know. I just you made me think of Zach Colors like mandalas that he's been doing. It's these beautiful like nature scenes and it's like fish and clams and like beautiful plants. But when you look at them, they're all Northwest native or not Northwest native, Northwest invasive species. Mm. And he made these beautiful paintings out of these things that are kind of really messed up politically and like causing problems um, environmentally in the state. And like, I think that's a really beautiful political painting without like hitting you over the head with it. Um, I think these kids that are graduating school with like 150 to $200,000 in debt to be an artist, like it's insane. Mm -hmm. It's totally insane that they're doing that. A lot of them have help through grants and student loans and parents, but, but still like when I start off with my kids, I'm like, you want to be an artist? And I kind of like giggle and I laugh. I'm like, do you, you may have this idea that it's this like beret wearing coffee shop, like fun wine drinking opening. Like it's, fucking hard and like <laughs> I, I'm, I'm broke i'm 42 i have no savings i don't own anything like but i just keep working on this hoping that it'll pay off but like it pays off emotionally and it satisfies me but like it's difficult and like it's difficult to start way in the hole with debt and like i feel yeah. really bad for a lot of these students um but i don't know a ton of people i know that i went to corners with they're still making art and like it's it's props to Cornish. It's props to like, I mean, this this city isn't really helping sustain people like it used to. Like people are having to leave because it's so expensive. It's interesting, but also people are getting paid. People are getting. There's a lot of other opportunities for artists right. uh, through Facebook, through Amazon, through um, Google and Vulcan. Like so, it's just it's just not like affecting everyone positively. Right. It's just, it's, it's changing. It's like, I'm ranting. it's like, a, it's a conversation that everyone in Seattle is like ad nauseum, just over and over and over. <laughs> but, 
it's yeah. it's affecting people every single day. And I think, yeah, kind of to, to kind of go back a little bit to what you're saying about the these kids who are graduating with this debt and they want to be artists and that idea of like, you know, you won't have anything. It's since moving to Australia, I've realized that when you're in a system where you're actually being taken care of, not having anything actually isn't scary because... <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> that idea of not having anything and, you know, being a musician or an artist and not having anything, it's okay because you're always going to have food and you're always going to have medical care here. And it's a completely different idea of going into the arts and creating cultural capital for your country, basically. It's kind of depressing. I know. <laughs> yeah. It, I think it, it really can be. And that's, yeah, something that, again, since I've been here, it's just, you just realize how much just stress Americans are walking around it in holding. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because, you know, at, at any moment, like, their whole world could come crashing down unless they're super wealthy. That's the only way to have a sense of security in America is to be super wealthy. So anyway, it's, uh, when are you guys going to, you guys should fix, fix it over there. You know, (laughs) I'm working on it. Actively. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The the 12 billion people that will listen to this podcast will change a bunch of different minds. I'm sure. I'm sure. Start buying all the prints. Great. So the, um, the students that you have, are they, they must be reacting to the politics of America and what and what they do. You know, they're, I guess they're millennials, right? If they're like 18, 19, when you yeah. meet them for the most part. Um, what is, what do you, how do you see that affecting their, their art making or their, their psyche even, having grown up in this, this world? Um, I think it's really weird for me because I remember being exactly in that position and like working on the same presses and it was like George W. Bush and the WTO and like fuck world, like all the trade and like the world mm-hmm. is like, we have the worst president ever in history. And then it's like, they're doing, they're saying the same things. I'm just like, Oh man, that's also kind of depressing. <laughs> it's just like, I, it was tough when I was a kid and you're like, Oh yeah, th- this is actually the world's, this is the worst president we've ever had. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think it's almost like a lot of them want to be Shepard Fairy and like make the badass poster that changes the world with one glance. And like that dude's been doing this for a long time. Mm. Um, I think the benefit with me is I'm teaching technique and um, a lot of it is having to talk to them about subtleties or like figuring out a way to say what they're saying without like giving it all up. Does that make sense? Like, Mm -hmm. just like, this is what I'm trying to say. This is why I'm trying to say it. This needs to be out in the world. Like, blam. Like, oh no, we actually have to work on like subtle visual cues. And like, you don't literally have to spell everything out in text, what you're trying to say, like try and work that into an image. Um, So that's been fun and really satisfying. And I think we've gotten some good results from that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, I think they're doing a good job of it. I think they're all really active and socially engaged. And um, I mean, we're constantly talking about 
the state of the world, but I mean, how could you not? Yeah, that's something that's that's come up a few times in conversations I've been having with American artists is that idea of, as you say, sort of that making art is in and of itself a political act, which I do believe, as cliche as that can be. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as you a little hokey. <laughs> yeah, it's a little hokey, but at the same time, it's you're you're making this decision of saying, yeah, I know I'm probably not going to have anything. But do you think that in some ways Seattle might be a canary in the coal mine for a lot of America in that our whole industry, you know, obviously we're not doing production anymore in the sense of factories. All those are closed down all through the Rust Belt. Is it, do you think that that's where we're going to start evolving into is more cities are going to be like San Francisco and Seattle and as artists, we're going to have to find a way to play nice with those kids if we want to survive. For sure. I mean, there's been so many panels. I mean, since like the first dot-com boom in the late 90s, like there's been like 50 panel discussions in Seattle. Like, how do we get tech people more interested in buying art or being a part of it? And like, they want Teslas and flat screens. And mm. now a lot of people want experiences and travel and um, the object the art object isn't as important. I've been to a bunch of people I know in tech and like I walk into their places and there's nothing on the walls or like a black and white, like Ikea Eiffel tower yeah. photo from Paris that just like, it, it's devastating. To me. <laughs> <laughs> we need to learn how to play nice and like figure out. And I, I do think there's a lot of uh, people working on it and crossover. I think the Seattle art fair has been, really awesome in bridging that gap and helping. Um, and the gallery scenes at least feels really robust and healthy right now, but like, I don't think people are buying mm -hmm. at least as much as they were a few years ago. It's people in tech, you know, it's, it's almost like they're like this other, I mean, I guess sort of they are, you know, there's this other tribe that's like, you know, they let me into their, their community once and here are my anthropological observations. But <laughs> the ones that I've, and when I've lived amongst them, um, you know, what I've experienced is, is that it's it's not that they're not interested in art, you know, or if, if you were to ask them, you know, what do you think about art or, or anything like that, if they'd be like, oh, I don't care about that. I think part of it is that they they have this idea, which I think is not just tech specific, that is a lot of people in America have this idea that sort of art's just not for them, right? Yeah, that there's that there's some sort of magical information they need to be able to stand in front of a work of art or experience a work of art and decide whether or not it moves them. Um, right. Th that there's a truth value to it. I think that they're seeking, that there's sort of a right way to respond to art. And I think that if we could somehow let people know that that's one of the greatest things about art is that there's not a truth value. You know, it's right. each person's individual experience and whether this this piece of work makes you makes you cry or makes you want to throw up or makes you happy or makes you feel nothing. All of those things are true because you're experiencing them and that's what it is. And it's, I think when you come from a very, uh, analytical tech, black and white, black yeah. and white, cause you know, and that's all math based, obviously all of that stuff, you know, where you're looking for a right answer. I think that we need to somehow, educate people that to realize that 
there's that there is no right answer and just to experience it that is the value yeah you're allowed to hate this actually yeah exactly but you do yeah because i tons of art that i see every single month <laughs> yeah all the time <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm very glad that you are holding out there and that you're going to be a pioneer in figuring out how we're all going to survive <laughs> once, once the whole world is made of lanyards and Patagonia jackets. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to make a lanyard bedazzling station down in Amazon land. <laughs> That's how I'll make my first million. <laughs> I love Puffy it. Puffy paint sequins. It's oh my awesome. gosh, it's gonna be really good. I can't wait. Maybe you can, um, yeah, or like uh, I'm trying to think if you can work printmaking into it somehow, like custom <laughs> custom letterpress lanyards. Nice. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, well, that's great. Well, I'm coming up on the recording time mark. Um, would you please tell everyone where they can find out? more about you um sure uh my group's website is suttonbarriscolor.com that's s-u-t-t-o-n-b-e-r-e-s-c-u-l-l-e-r um i show at davidson galleries that's where my printmaking is at my instagram is benjamite1061 <laughs> and that's probably the best places to find me sounds good i will i'll link to all of these in the show notes well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me, and I... And thanks for doing this. It's really awesome that there's, like, another, um, I don't know, avenue for people to explore print and have these stories and, like, see what's behind all the work. It's, it's really awesome and admirable, and I'm super stoked to dig into all the content you've created. Thanks again, Ben. Cool. Right, bye. bye! This episode of Pine Copper Lime, like all episodes, was written and produced by me. Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak, and music by Joshua Weber. Thanks for stopping by, and I'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>